Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Ani, and welcome back to New Books in Native American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, David Dry, speaking to you from Catawba Territory, and today we have the pleasure to be talking with Thomas Lapis about his new book, In League Against King Alcohol, Native American Women and the Women's Christian Temperance Union, 1874 to 1933. The book, published in 2020 by the University of Oklahoma Press, explores the largely untold story of the Women's Christian Temperance Union in Indian Country. Thomas, welcome to the show. Well, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I wonder if you could start things off by telling us a little about yourself and your background as a scholar, teacher, and writer. Okay, sure. So um, I originally started out my scholarly life as a, as a colonialist. And I guess even back when I was an undergraduate, I went to Kenyon College in, uh, in Gambier, Ohio. And I became interested, very interested in the relationship between um, Native Americans of New France and Northern New England, or what was New France and New England in the colonial era, and um, the, the interplay um, between uh, the, the Native communities there and primarily the Jesuits, um, as well as the New England missionaries. And my dissertation was originally a biography of a Jesuit missionary and his relationship with the Abenaki or Wabanaki um, communities of um, what's now northern Maine and um, southern Canada. And so a, a long story, uh, a little bit short, is um, when I got my first job, I got a job as a colonial historian at Nazareth College. And I started um, a project on what was still early America on um, I, I thought my dissertation was going to be published as a book, you know, and that's what most normal people do, right? Is there their dissertation becomes their first book. And I was working on that, kind of editing that up, adding some things, fixing some things, getting ready for that to be the first, you know, the first manuscript that went out. And I started a second project, but I knew I was going to have to kind of stay local. So I was very interested in um, the relationship between the uh, labor of the Erie Canal, the, the Erie Canal building process, and the potential for uh, Native American labor, because of course the Erie Canal was essential or was a key factor in the displacement um, of the Seneca uh, people who uh, whose territory we're in right now in, in Rochester. Um, so I started looking at kind of um, close-up records uh, uh, dealing with uh, the, the canal construction period. And that really brought me into the 1820s, 1830s. And I started finding all these um, connections to um, uh, or references to the Six Nations Temperance Society or the Temperance Society of the Iroquois. And this was something coming as a, you know, as a colonialist, as an early Americanist, I knew about uh, Handsome Lake and his uh, prophecies and visions that led to uh, the Gaiwido or the Longhouse tradition. Um, but I didn't know anything about this, uh, what seemed to be a kind of Christian temperance organization. And so I sort of, in some ways, I shifted my research trajectory from being primarily a colonialist to somebody who was really interested in what was the 19th and going into the 20th century. So 
I magically became a, a 19th century historian. I guess my book, since it goes into 1933, somehow I'm a modern historian uh, too. So uh, my trajectory is a little non-traditional in that sense. And one of the remarkable things you mentioned you were trying to stay local, but one of the remarkable things about the book is the wide array of archival materials you bring together to tell this story. Could you talk a little bit about uh, making the book and some of the tribal groups and regions that feature prominently? Yeah, sure. I'd, I'd be happy to. And, and here's where um, I have the potential to go really long here. So feel free to interrupt as, uh, as I do. So this um, this started out, um, as, a, as, a, as I said, a local, uh, really local. Um, so. I was um, finding material about the Seneca, Seneca communities and Tuscarora communities. In fact, the Tuscarora, um, the Tuscarora Nation today still hosts the Six Nation Temperance Society meetings primarily, probably the most active. Um, so uh, I was finding sources um, and, and people um, who were relating to, related to the um, temperance movement uh, in Seneca Seneca Reservations and out of Tuscarora. And then um, I found kind of a gold mine at the Onondaga County Historical Society, which is in Syracuse, and that's four miles north of the Onondaga Nation. And their, um, the archive there had a series of newspaper uh, accounts um, relating um, to the temperance movement on Onondaga. And the woman there was a woman named uh, Elizabeth or Eliza Pierce. And she was involved with a lot of the major temperance groups. So she was a member of the IOGT or independent order of grand Templars, which was um, actually started in central New York state. Uh, she was a member of that organization. She was a member of the WCTU. She was a member of the six nations temperance society. Um, she was involved in a number of um, kind of scandals on the, on the reservation that um, made it to the news. So there was a lot of kind of biographical material about her. So in this process, I said, okay, well, I don't know anything. I really don't know anything about the Women's Christian Temperance Union at all. So in that process um, of trying to find out more about them, um, I connected with a couple local people, uh, local scholars um, who had done some stuff on the WCTU, and they kind of told me how to read the records, and they pointed me to the microfilm, um, the microfilm series, which has the national um, – annual meeting minutes, and it has the Union Signal, which was a weekly uh, newspaper or news magazine that the WCTU published, um, and still technically it still publishes it, but it's not nearly as, um, as comprehensive. And I started reading, so I literally started just ordering the microfilm and reading, um, reading them from start to finish. There's The Finding Aid only exists in Evanston. Um, they haven't been digitized yet. And so the only way you can really get at um, small details is to read through everything, kind of scanning. And I ended up getting getting glasses, uh, staring at the microfilm machine so much. Um, but I started collecting, you know, I find I started looking primarily at New York State um, to try to find references to particular communities that I knew were close to reservations. And and I found stuff. Uh, I found references to that kind of formed the basis of the book. So. I found a lot of material about Seneca, uh, Seneca Nation um, at Allegheny in particular, but a little bit at Cataraugus, um, and then a lot at Onondaga and a lot on Tuscarora. And so that really started um, that really started the process for me uh, was in New York State. Now, then I went to Evanston, uh, which is the center of the, the WCTU's world. Um, it is still the home 
of the Francis Willard Memorial Library and Archives. Um, and it is um, the place where the Union Signal was published. So they have all of the national records uh, there and then all the state records as state um, as state unions largely go defunct. Um, the state records get sent to the WCTU uh, archives there. And so there's a big com uh, compendium, I guess you could say, of the state records that are there. But almost more importantly, there's archivists. Um, and the archivists at uh, the Francis Willard uh, Memorial Library were really helpful in helping me to understand just how the WCTU worked, how it was organized, more about Francis Willard. Um, and so what I started doing, what I then started doing is I, I started looking through the state records that they had in the archives. And I was there really only for a few days, but I began to realize how the state records were organized. Now, again, these are, they were published, but they certainly weren't widely reproduced and they were very limited. Um, they were very li limited in Evanston. So I applied for um, a grant from the um, Hazelden, uh, Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation, actually. Um, they have a research grant for social science research into alcohol and addiction. And I started to, uh, I, I took kind of what I knew about how New York State records were organized, that there were little tidbits in these national records and the annual meeting minutes and in the, um, the union signal and that there might be a state uh, level annual meeting minute that was published. Um, there may have even been a state newspaper. Uh, New York State published one, but the records for that are very spotty, believe it or not, even though New York State was one of the biggest uh, WCTU unions. Um, and then there would be, um, the states would often publish these uh, kind of biographies or histories of the women who were in their organization or the organizations themselves. Um, and so these were the three big kinds of sources that existed outside of the national ones, which were on microfilm. So I developed, I guess you call it a method, was I tried to track down every, uh, every, in every state uh, where there was a major Native American population, um, I tracked down um, in the various libraries, archives, state, you know, university record, university um, libraries or uh, state historical associations, um, wherever there was a WCTU um, um, collection, I just kind of tracked down, all right, what do you have? Do you have the Union Sig? Do you have their state newspaper? Do you have their state uh, annual meeting minutes? Do you have any additional sources, um, other, you know, records that somebody, um, somebody left the states, uh, the states when they, when their organization, when their WCTU union went defunct, did they, empty out grandma's attic and kind of transfer these to the university or the state historical society. And basically that's where I, you know, took the show on the road. And so I went to the upper Midwest first and I went, um, in 2016, uh, I went to, you know, Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, Minnesota, uh, North and South Dakota, and made another trip to Evanston that year. And I found out that, that this is, this works, that I was able to kind of, uh, the way I described it is, you know, some people are looking for a needle in a haystack. I was looking for a lot of needles under a lot of different haystacks. But in every in every archive I went to, um, as I read through the newspapers, there were little references to a Native American community, either uh, a boarding school, um, a town that was next to a reservation or a town that existed where a reservation had previously been. Um, or in the case of, you know, depending on where you are in Oklahoma, um, 
a place that was um, Native American territory, but wasn't reservation territory or um, in California. Um, what you had was uh, a situation where the Native American population was doubly disenfranchised and that they were um, they did not have reservation land um, where they would have access to kind of federal education uh, at some level. And they were also discriminated against in kind of the state public school system. Um, and so in California, um, there were there was a fight for the for not just the WCTU, but the Women's National Indian Association to fight to reclaim um, to reacquire land for the tribes in California. So in in those places, um, the because there was a there was a fight or a dispute um, and claims and there were reform organizations, um, they left records. And so throughout the country, uh, I, I took the um, the work that came out of the Upper Midwest research trip. Uh, I applied for uh, a grant through the Louisville Institute, um, which um, exists for the study of the church in North America. And since the WCTU is, you know, first and foremost, a Christian uh, temperance union, um, they were generous enough to finance the big Western trip. And that's that. That saw the pockets of Oklahoma, um, a lot of activity in California, uh, a lot of activity in Washington state. And then, um, you know, smaller stories in um, in uh, Montana and Idaho, but nonetheless uh, kind of important to the overall picture of the WCTU was involved in Native American communities all over the country. Um, and certainly the pockets were in New York state, uh, Oklahoma, California, uh, Washington State. Um, these were kind of the hotbeds, um, but at the same time, they really they attempted to go anywhere there was a Native American uh, community. Uh, they attempted to reach out, and and furthermore, um, Native American women in um, in their communities, if they had uh, come into contact with WCTU leaders or missionaries who were connected to them, or if they found out through the, their boarding school experiences. Uh, Native American women uh, reached out to the WCTU um, unions themselves uh, also. So that's a little bit of an overview of kind of how this went from a local to a, uh, you know, really broad national um, project. And so I kind of tricked myself into, um, you know, making it the exact opposite of the local uh, project I thought it was going to be. Um, and it ended up taking me all around the country. Well, you ended up with a wonderful result. And the book, of course, explores the various layers of the organization and these various regions that you visited. And I wonder if you could first uh, give us the perspective of the national leadership and how outreach to Indians fit into their general goals and mandate. Yeah, so this is so um, this was fascinating to me. And, and um, there's a couple key leaders. I guess I'll try to focus it on a couple key leaders. And the first one uh, we should talk, we have to talk about is Frances Willard, who really defines the organization. She is the second president, second president of the WCTU. Um, she's president for almost 20 years, and she changes it from an organization that's just focused on temperance to one that's focused on um, any uh, any social reform movement that can tangentially help the temperance movement. So this meant suffrage, uh, but this also meant uh, child labor. It meant uh, anti-cigarette uh, smoking. Um, and they also had uh, many departments under her. Um, they created departments of outreach. So there was a department, of, uh, department among lumbermen. Uh, there was a department among miners. And so they, they 
organized initiatives to send people out to these particular communities. And initially, um, the department is the Department of Work among uh, the Chinese, Indians, and colored people. And so you see a sense of kind of, well, they're taking, it's a classic example of just looking at lumping the others all into one category or one department. Um, and very early on, um, after about a year or two of experimenting with that as a, as a department, um, they break it apart. They just recognize that, okay, very, very clearly there's a problem. <laughs> there's a problem with doing this. Even if our goal is transformation and assimilation, there's just distinctiveness among um, these communities. And so Willard herself um, goes through a transformation, I think. And she goes to she goes to what is then Indian territory at least twice in her life. Um, but even so, even before she goes there, um, she comments. I, I talk a little bit about this, I think, primarily in Chapter three, um, where I talk about how the WCTU writes about Native Americans almost from a literary perspective. And early on uh, in Willard's writings, she really uses American Indian people as kind of a literary trope um, that they are um, that that they are emblematic of savagery and brutality and that um, civilization in general is going to be something that is going to transform them. Um, and she's, she's come into almost no contact with native peoples at all at this point. Um, now she uses, um, she uses them as metaphor. She talks about um, the um, people who are displaced from California, the Modocs who end up in um, Indian territory. She talks about them um, in just, outright um, ethnocentric, if not just plain racist ways, um, then she takes a trip to Indian territory. And I think during this period of time, I think at some level, she, she comes into contact with the diversity of Native American peoples, and she hears stories. Um, she hears stories of displacement. Um, she travels primarily through um, you know, what is Indian territory proper, the eastern portion of what is now Oklahoma. And so she's coming into contact with primarily Cherokee and Creeks um, and primarily um, the more assimilated members of those communities. And while she remains, she retains much of her ethnocentrism, I think she gets a more complicated picture of um, Native American, uh, Native American communities. So I think at, at one level, you know, Willard changes, uh, Willard changes a little bit. Now she's not going to escape her um, 19th century Anglo-centric um, roots and the limitations that are on almost everybody um, from that period of time, and she's just not she's not kind of embedded in, in a Native American community for any for any real length of time. Um, but I do see her going through um, a subtle change, but her perception of what should happen in Native American communities remains fairly firm. That is, she sees conversion to Christianity, absorption into the broader uh, Euro-American economic system. Um, she sees these as the um, the things that the WCTU should be should be pursuing with Native communities. Um, there's a sensitivity or desire to make sure that Native Americans have some land base, um, but that there's an assumption that that land base is then going to be um, allotted. So that individual people will own the land rather than tribes um, in common. So she definitely sees tribal. She doesn't see tribes as something that are going to continue to exist politically, which, of course, is going to contrast from what I see is a lot of Native American women who are in the organization 
who don't necessarily who don't necessarily give up on that. Um, even if allotment happens, they see a border um, around Native American communities as being something that could still exist. So uh, a combination of private property and at the same time uh, Indian homelands going on at the same time. I think that's one place where Native American women and the WCTU leadership are going to differ. Um, the other woman uh, who really deserves uh, a great deal of mention is Dorcas Spencer. And Dorcas Spencer um, gets really early, gets involved very early in um, uh, what, what they call Indian work. And so she um, she is primarily from California, and she helps to form um, the Northern Branch, the Northern California Branch of the WCTU. Um, so she's deeply involved in temperance from from very early on. She is involved in um, the Hoopa Valley Indian Reservation. She's involved with um, a guy named Billy Beckwith, um, who has uh, connected with her in order to try to push out a military base that's there. And so she uh, learns a lot um, from Beckwith about um, the inequities that happen when you have a primarily male military base on or near a Native American community who's vulnerable um, and the relationship of alcohol to the abuse that happens, um, violence against women, uh, violence against the Indian community more broadly. And so she's, a, she's um, much sharper in understanding exactly the impact that alcohol is going to portray and or play rather in exacerbating some of the problems on uh, the reservations. Now, Spencer, over the course of her time, what I find fascinating about Spencer um, is that although she's going, she's going to travel almost as much as Willard does um, to Native American communities all around the country. So Spencer's going to be in, um, in uh, Arizona, New Mexico, um, Oklahoma, certainly all over California. She's going to make it to New York State. Um, she's going to meet with uh, Lydia Pierce. And she will speak very affectionately of uh, the Native American women who are in the organization and the, um, the efforts that they're making. There's still quite a bit of condescension in the way that she writes about Native American women, almost um, kind of patting them on the back for doing things that um, I guess she's a little surprised at how organized they'll be. The, the, the language they used was parliamentary usage, which was actually another department um, that was established in the WCTU. But it basically meant, meant um, did they run meetings by Robert Rules, Robert's Rules of Order? And a lot of Native American women, especially those who went to um, either boarding schools or Euro-American day schools, you know, they were bilingual. They were often um, biliterate, depending on the community that they were in. Um, and so just following Robert's rules of order was kind of one of the things that you might have done in the in the clubs in those schools. So there was a little bit of condescension when she talked about how kind of how Native American women would run meetings or how organized they were they were or how well they wrote or spoke. Um, but there was nonetheless a sense of, of, of admiration. Um, but even Spencer, for all of her understanding of kind of the, the devastation of white policy, of um, the, the problems of warfare, the um, Indian office that she looked at, it wasn't assimilation that she was generally opposed, that she was opposed to. It was uh, either graft or duplicitousness of um, Indian agents who maybe were dealing alcohol or even bringing alcohol onto the reservation. Um, 
she would often write about those kinds of things, corruption in the Indian office, rather than the assimilation policy itself, which, of course, was part of the WCTU's efforts. So I think if you look at Spencer and Willard um, as kind of, you know, very powerful individuals who are emblematic of what the WCTU's overall view of Native Americans um, was, um, they were they were definitely committed to assimilation. At times, there are uh, criticisms of federal Indian policy removal, how that unfolded. Um, any kind of um, any any policy that ended up like so for allotment, the biggest problem with allotment was how it unfolded. Often, um, when Native Americans received title to the land and then were able to sell the land to whites, um, they were often upset that Native Americans lost their individual plots but they weren't necessarily upset over um, the breaking up of tribal political organization or so, social cultural organization. So they were kind of critical of many things that I, kind of, I think a lot of modern modern scholars and all and Native American people from that time through the present would be critical of. Um, but at the same time, um, they, they didn't often challenge the overall assimilation uh, policies of the federal government. Could you talk a little bit more about um, those connections to assimilation policies? In particular, I'm thinking of your last chapter on Indian boarding schools. Yeah. So, um, so the boarding school chapter, I, um, I was um, the the boarding schools I found to be real, very. I mean, it, they're they're obviously interesting in a lot of ways, and they're obviously terrible in a lot of ways. What I found was interesting about um, Native American uh, children who were involved in these, in the temperance organizations at the school, I think it, well, two things. One is from the WCTU's organizational perspective, um, and where women really did have a lot of, I mean, had a lot of um, kind of clout in the 19th century, is with educational policy. Uh, obviously, school board elections are one of the first elections that uh, women. Um, that women were allowed to vote in in the United States. There was a sense of child rearing as part of the cult of true womanhood. You know, child rearing was uh, an expectation or um, a venue or route that was uh, encouraged for women. So where the WCTU saw a lot of success was in the implementation of the scientific temperance instruction. Um, and... Um, they got that into the federal Indian boarding schools from a, from a fairly early uh, stage. But in the 1880s, um, um, the what was essentially the superintendent of Indian affairs, uh, you know, brought that into the Indian schools and then kind of followed up. That is, or he claimed to follow up to make sure that this instruction was taught. And there were certain textbooks that were re recommended by the WCTU, and they they ended up in the in the boarding schools. So they were. Um, they were influential at affecting the curriculum in um, in the boarding schools, and from a Native American from the children's perspective, um, trying to get in, and um, you know, as somebody who's a, a teacher of, you know, I teach college age children, but there's you know, in a fairly democratic society, there's still an element of coercion, right? When you're teaching, you're wondering, well, these students just parroting back to me what I expected them to, what I told them to say, or are they actually coming up with their own ideas? And so what happens is the children um, who are in the boarding schools, 
they write either um, assignments, and in some, some boarding school records, we have remnants of the assignments. Um, we have remnants of speeches, you know, valedictory speeches or speeches that were delivered at um, um, what were called the medal contests. These were the Loyal Temperance Legion, which was the kids group of the WCTU. Uh, they often gave they had medal contests. And sometimes the speeches for those medal contests were preserved. And then in the newspapers, uh, the student newspapers um, at, uh, at Haskell or um, um, Carlisle and um, Sherman Indian School, uh, we have the remnants of some of the newspapers. And in the columns, student, students wrote stuff. And then the other thing is that sometimes the student newspapers um, from one place, from one boarding school, they would receive some of the news that was happening at another boarding school. And so they would reprint some of the stories. So trying to, you know, asking the question, to what extent were Native American uh, children or young adults, were they absorbing the message of the WCTU? Were they absorbing temperance? Were they absorbing Christianity um, and kind of main, mainstream Protestant Christianity um, of the ilk the WCTU promoted? Uh, to what extent were they um, promoting the... Um, assimilation into the broader uh, industrial capitalist um, society or the market economy, the market farming economy, um, where they, you know, wanted to produce, um, you know, crops and livestock for the market. And they laud these things in their speeches and their newspapers, um, et cetera. Now, on the one hand, it's it's very easy it's it's very easy to just look at this and say okay this is the product of complete manipulation uh, the children are simply doing what um, the authorities in power say because they don't have the ability to or there's very little ability to resist in this situation and certainly you know many of the other studies of, of boarding schools uh, uh, Loma Wyma's book they called it called it Prairie Light you know talks about how the kids were you know uh, making beer and moonshine uh, in the woods outside the school outside of Toloco. Uh, so while resistance certainly occurred um, and coercion was certainly part of the story, um, at the same time, um, some of these children, we can find a little bit of their background or at least the background is is in the story that they're writing about. And many of them are coming from families where alcohol abuse was a real problem. And so these temperance clubs, um, which were sometimes um, loyal temperance legions, that is the official WCTU kids groups, uh, many of these that were at the boarding schools, I think many of those kids found camaraderie. Um, they found a place where they could share some of their stories about how bad it was back home and make a commitment to not drink themselves. And they saw it as kind of legitimate. Um, and they um, they were affected positively by that. And evidence for that is that some of these are the individuals who end up in power in um their communities later. Um, there's a guy in the Seneca community who um, is involved at the Tunisasa boarding school, the Quaker, uh, Quaker school, um, and he later becomes um, uh, involved in tribal government. So I think that some of these, um, some of these organizations, some of these kids organizations at the boarding schools, um, I think there was a, a, it served a legitimate need and some of the children found um, solace or um, camaraderie among groups of people that may have shared uh, similar traumas uh, of alcohol abuse in their family communities. So I think it's a mixed, you know, it's a mixed, you're, you're left thinking that on the one hand, there's clearly coercion going on. Um, some of the stuff going on in the scientific temperance instruction definitely has uh, an ethnocentric uh, bent to it. Um, 
But at the same time, I think they, I think the kids organizations uh, did serve, um, you know, had some legitimate support for it among children. And in the book, you really get a sense of, of you're grappling with how to interpret, uh, you know, these writings of these students. And you face a, a similar challenge in interpreting uh, Native women who are involved in the WCTU in general in the, in the assimilation era. So could you talk about some of the ways that Native women, um, you know, redeployed or redirected um, what the organization from a national perspective was trying to do for their own ends and why they came to the organization in general? Yeah. So, um Oops. Um, so a couple of things. I mean, one of uh, the Native American women who, who left the most records. Right. So so Lila Lindsay, um, Lila Lindsay is obviously um, a big one here. You know, this was this was somebody who had already gone through the Euro-American educational system. Um, you know, she was she was educated in, in white schools and she was living a fairly. Um, a fairly um, middle class, even above that uh, lifestyle. And I think some over the course of their life had developed not only a thick skin, but also the ability to kind of use humor um, to kind of um, to shift, uh, to shift conversations. One of the rhetorical devices I saw a couple times, and I, I mentioned this you know, only briefly, was a couple different Native American leaders were quoted as saying, I'm glad my people were on the receiving end when your people arrive. And this was in different, you know, totally different contexts. And I think sometimes there was um, an attempt to um, use humor um, in those public speeches to explain that there was, uh, there were connections uh, between, between two communities. Um, so I think, uh, and then, um, one of the chapters I begin talking about, there's a woman in Indian country, a, a white woman, um, and it's after the major floods of the white population into, uh, Indian territory in Oklahoma. And she delivers, um, one of the, one of the kind of very common, uh, horrible racist tropes that the WCTU leadership, um, <clears throat> will use was, would, was, um, when, Native American men got the right to vote in certain areas, um, particularly in South Dakota um, <clears throat> and ultimately in Oklahoma. Um, they would use uh, the WCTU leadership would compare uh, well-educated white women to Native American men who didn't necessarily have the same Euro-American education. And they would say horrible things about uh, those men's eligibility to vote. Um, and this was coming out of, obviously, their frustration and, and, and lacking the franchise as well. So this one woman's giving this you know, terribly racist uh, speech saying just like those things that we have for our political equals, uh, children, the insane and Indians. And she's delivering this speech in Indian country. And Lila Lindsay and dozens or hundreds of other Native American women are in the audience. And yet um, they are able to kind of continue on in the organization. Um, I think part of this was, uh, you know, and that's not to say that they weren't furious. We don't have necessarily the anger that people felt when they heard those kinds of things. But what they left in their public um, in their public records um, was not much commentary on those um, kind of racist elements that were that were there. 
Um, on the other hand, what they then do, what um, what I do think um, Native American women like Lila Lindsay saw was that the real practical problems of alcohol sales to Native Americans on the res on either on reservations or in Native American communities uh, that were that were off reservation was that they saw the drunkenness and the um, inability to uh, work and provide for families and the domestic abuse. And they saw that as much more of an immediate problem and threat uh, to their communities than any of the stuff that um, that um, certain uh, racist white women were saying. So I think they um, had developed probably a great deal of kind of mental toughness um, to overlook some of this stuff. Uh, but I think they saw the WCTU overall and their mission of trying to tighten up um, enforcement of laws, whether they be uh, federal Indian laws or whether they be state laws um, in places like in places like Oklahoma. Um, or when they saw that um, certain allies of the WCTU. Um, so uh, William Pussyfoot Johnson, the guy who's the federal um, the federal inspector. He realizes that some of the Indian treaties um, had stipulations that even after the land was allotted, that those territories were supposed to remain dry in perpetuity. And so what that meant was they could use um, treaties um, in certain areas in order to um, create towns that were dry, even though the Native American population um, no longer kind of no longer held all the territory in those areas. So I think they saw either law enforcement, creative ways of extending jurisdictions as William Johnson did, who obviously wasn't a WCTU member, was, but was an ally uh, of the WCTU, or um, in their ability to, um, to try to educate the young in particular, um, I see those, those elements, um, reaching out to the young, creating organizations, creating an educational system, um, in the boarding schools or the day schools where the children um, were compelled to attend, I think they saw the practical the practical effects of curtailing, um, you know, just the health uh, from the drunkenness, the inability to um, to work and thus provide for a family, and the domestic violence. I think they saw that all three of those social problems um, were majorly influenced by alcohol abuse and thus. They saw the WCTU as the most powerful ally in fighting for those things, even if some of the white women in those communities and those organizations said some terrible things um, and behaved in um, ways that were uh, were offensive. It struck me in reading this book, um, you know, how Native women brought their own perspectives on on seemingly every aspect of the organization. You know, women, Christianity, temperance, uh, community. Uh, can you talk about, with perhaps uh, an example or two, um, how Native women brought their own perspectives to the organization and to its goals that they sought to achieve locally? Yeah. Um, so the one, the one, and I think this is the this is probably the best example I have of this. Although there there are other ones, um, is uh, Lydia Lydia Pierce um, and the how it worked, especially among uh, the Haudenosaunee or the Iroquois in, in New York State. So for, um, for those who aren't familiar, um, Iroquois um, or Haudenosaunee 
by um, the time you're in the 1720s, uh, um, you have uh, six nations of Iroquois in New York State, um, and all of those um, all of those nations um, have uh, a series of clans uh, that are matriarchal um, and matrilineal, and there is a, a system by which uh, Native American clan mothers um, look around the community as children are children are growing. And they uh, educate and guide uh, these children who are going to ultimately become the male leaders in the community. And at some point in time, um, the women who are the clan, uh, clan mothers will select um, the people who will be the chiefs of their communities. And there, but it's a longer process. It's not simply an election. It's an elect, it's an, uh, it's an appointment by the clan mothers that occurs after uh, a period of education of children, and over the course of their life, um, they are, you know, looking out for uh, traits of leadership um, and looking for bad traits too. Things that would, things that would um, preclude someone from a leadership position. And that one picture um, it was actually sent to me by uh, a friend of mine uh, named Leslie Dunlap, who, who works also in the WCTU and their. Um, their work in Native American and African American communities. And she sent me the picture. It was actually in Dorcas Spencer's collection out in California. And all it said on the back was Western, uh, you know, Western New York, uh, Indian WCTU. But front and center is uh, Lydia Pierce. And I looked closer at the picture and I found, you know, I, I looked and if you, if you just kind of pass it by, you can just see all the women who are there. There's a bunch of older women in the back. Um, and then there's some uh, two uh, boys and a girl who are up front. If you just look closely, they all kind of have some white thing on their shirt um, or dress. But when you look closer, the women all have white ribbons, which indicates that they're members of the WCTU. And the children all have uh, medals, which means that they were involved in the medal contest. And I, this was the image that struck me so much um, that that some of the elements of Iroquois or, or Haudenosaunee uh, matriarchy and matrilineal organization and the importance of women in raising future political leaders <clears throat> echoed ex almost exactly the message of the WCTU. Um, the WCTU's uh, motto for the Loyal Temperance Legion was tremble king alcohol for we shall grow up. Um, and the idea being was that these women who were unable to vote themselves um, they were going to raise children. They were going to educate children uh, along these temperance principles. And then those young boys who become men are going to vote for, uh, for prohibition um, and uh, probably suffrage. So that there was a sense of kind of raising children, raising young men upright by women uh, was going to lead to the success of, uh, of the community. And in a lot of the rhetoric, and a lot of the rhetoric that's used, and it was particularly profound among um, the uh, Iroquois communities in New York State, was that idea of raising future political, uh, raising future leaders uh, among the children, that that was important. Uh, but the other thing was, and Lydia Pierce does this in a couple ways, most profoundly in a pamphlet that she writes. Um, so this was something that was encouraged by uh, Dorcas Spencer, um, but Pierce writes this, and she actually uses um, uh, Haudenosaunee oral traditions, uh, particularly the oral tradition of the foundation of the Iroquois League. That is how the, uh, the original five tribes 
uh, our five nations came together from a period of time when they were warring and they uh, they came together in uh, what became um, the Great League of uh, Peace and Power. Um, that oral tradition of, of nations coming together in order to uh, be stronger together and fight some common foe, um, she uses that oral tradition in a pamphlet that she writes and then is sent out to South Dakota, um, where um, in South Dakota, um, the primarily Lakota uh, people were going to be voting in elections um, for uh, for uh, uh, prohibition in South Dakota. And so she was using an oral tradition from her community to explain to uh, another native community uh, why they should get involved in the in the prohibition uh, prohibition fight. So the willingness to use um, or the, the kind of parallels between um, training young men to go up and um, participate in uh, politics in a righteous way. Um, that was something I saw as, you know, very emblematic of the matrilineal matriarchal elements of Haudenosaunee communities, but also the willingness to use uh, oral tradition uh, and metaphors um, from, from their own traditions um, in their fight. I saw that as something that was, um, you know, there, that was very common and very uh, upfront, but it was probably most profound in that example uh, with Lydia Pierce. Your book sits at the intersection of a number of different historiographies, certainly, you know, the assimilation era and Indian policy, um, Indian boarding schools, you know, temperance and prohibition, gender studies, progressive era reform. Um, can you speak to some of the different audiences that you had in mind for your book and some of the ways you hope historians can benefit from looking at this organization and the perspective that you outline? Okay, so this is this is the question where I'm going to get uh, nervous. And so I'm just going to I'm going to give you my nervous response. So. I am sure I stepped in it um, in some way or another um, in various places in this. One, there's so many different regions. There's so many different tribal communities, each of it which have their own, um, their own both internal scholarship among uh, the elders and the faith or um, uh, tradition keepers in their communities. Then there's a whole host of scholars that study those communities. Um, and likewise, um, there are people who deal with, uh, you know, feminist theory, um, and there's people who deal with, you know, government organizations. Um, that is the Indian Office itself. Um, so I'm sure that there are moments where I am missing something big. Um, however, with that in mind, um, the one of the things that I was really excited about with doing this was exactly that that on the one hand, this was a wonderful opportunity for me um, as somebody who does Native American history and teaches Native American history to go around the country. And although oral history is, is only a, a, a very minute part of this, that is um, um, some, some, um, some Native American people gave me very important information about some of the people involved in this. Um, it really gave me a, an opportunity to travel to um, many different Native communities and try to learn specific histories um, about those communities. So on the one hand, I, I, I really hope that the book serves as a starting point for somebody else who wants to um, look more in depth at um, a temperance movement in their own community. Um, so I really hope that would really be really kind of one of my one of my uh, 
one of my joys that would come out of this. If, if some of the archival material that I kind of pulled out of the woodwork or pulled out of the microfilm machine, if you will, that provided kind of a framework or a certain way of thinking about things, if that could be juxtaposed or coupled with um, um, other people's work in a more focused way about some of these communities, I think that would be that would be something that I would really um, be happy to see happen. Um, I think that it, it connects a lot of um, different ref women's reform organizations, both Indian reform organizations or Native American reform organizations and non-Native reform organizations. So, um, for instance, the, the um, Women's National Indian Association, um, the uh, Zion uh, Conference or uh, uh, Mount Hermon in California, the um, Lake Mohawk Conferences of the Friends of the Indian, uh, all of these organizations um, had some foot or another in the WCTU or members of the WCTU had their foot, had their foot in those. So I think that one of the um, one of the things that the temperance movement does is it, it actually connects many of these organizations um, and many of those kind of many of those reformers. One a couple places where um, I think that I was a little bit surprised or where I think that there's actually kind of the next um, you know where I was left where I was left thinking you know if I had more time uh, I, I might want to explore this more is um, I think that the WCTU and particularly its its Indian work, I think there's the ecumenical side of it. Um, that is the social gospel Christianity. And certainly, there's a lot of scholarship on social gospel uh, Christianity. Um, but I think the WCTU is a very powerful force in cementing that um, because they're they're specifically. Um, running up against, that is fighting against what is going to become um, the fundamentalist Christian uh, Christian movement. Um, in fact, Frances Willard, especially I see it later in her career, uh, emphasizes and articulates, and, and Dorcas Spencer uses the same language of uh, Christian socialism. Um, that is that um, these Christian organizations uh, or these Christian churches um, have much more in common and doing the will of Jesus on earth in engaging in all these reform organizations. And so the WCTU is meeting at, you know, a Baptist church in Oklahoma and then a Methodist church in Oklahoma and then a, a Episcopal church. So there's there's a great ecumenical um, force going on in the WCTU. And I think that it's I think it's a more powerful force generally for American Protestant Christianity um, than maybe has previously been been discussed. And I think that their work among uh, Native Americans was a big part of that. Um, and I think part of that has to do with um, the ecumenical or flexible nature of uh, Christianity in many Native American communities, um, whereby people are going to uh, uh, Longhouse and then going to the Methodist Church. Um, and many of the WCTU women had to kind of deal with that or the um uh, missionaries who were working in the Native American community, they saw overall temperance uh, activity, regardless of what religious form it took, as having a positive social effect. So I think there's, I think there's more going on, um, or or there's more impact of the WCTU in both uh, general ecumenical uh, Christianity or social gospel Christianity, um, and I think Native American, their outreach to Native Americans is, is part of that. So I think that's um, 
you know, a big part of it. I think one of the things that WCTU was so interested in with federal Indian policy was examples where Indian agents were uh, corrupt or not. And so I think the book, by, by talking about what the WCTU was after, who they tried to get kicked out, who they were um, tried to expose, or who they lauded, um, because some of these people, some of the women were politically well-connected. So they could write a letter to uh, the governor of their state who might be buddies with their husband, and that meant something. And, um, or, or the senators who um, obviously were active at a national level. And they were able to get certain um, federal officials ousted um, for, you know, either either just bringing a bottle of booze onto a reservation um, to drink with his friends. Um, that was enough to sometimes get people um, canned. Sometimes um, people were engaging in um, the alcohol trade itself, which was obviously both illegal and immoral from the WCTU's perspective. So I think the book also talks about... Um, or illuminate some of the examples of corruption that happens um, in the federal Indian office. So regardless of, you know, regardless of the kind of benevolent assimilationist aims of some people, uh, some people were doing that and were just downright corrupt and violating what was the intent of uh, various Indian policies also. So you're right in that, I, I mean, the book by its nature jumps into a lot of different, a lot of different fields. Um, but I'm also I also ended up being kind of hyper aware of um, the potential for danger, uh, the danger when doing that. Um, so I think, you know, those are my those are my areas where I think that it really kind of touches on and makes a contribution. Um, but I also hope that just kind of bringing forward uh, some of the archival or microfilm material into what I hope is a coherent story um, can be a jumping off point for uh, for other either more focused studies um, or for studies that are, you know, more focused in one particular field, um, such as, um, you know, federal federal Indian policy or um, gender studies and feminist theory or um, local indigenous communities. Um, those are those are the places where I think that um, this might be a jumping off point for. And now that this project is complete, do you have a new project that you're working on? Yeah, so um, so I guess um, part of me kind of gets dragged. And I don't want to say dragged. That's wrong. The more I think about the book or talk about it, um, you know, whether it's on campus um, or you know, giving a book talk or or this, um, I get excited about certain things that I feel like we're unfinished or that there's more to do. Um, there's certainly more to do. You know, the the the, the connection between um, John Collier um, and Stella Atwater. And there's so, uh, and the uh, still outlet and the um, the Southern California reform uh, movement. Um, that's someplace that I could see being uh, you know being interested again. I, get, I keep getting dragged back into certain things that I find interesting about you know the next step for this research. Um, but the uh, the dissertation uh, was left unfinished, so I feel like I have some unfinished business back in the 17th and 18th centuries that I'd like to uh, revisit. Um, although certainly, you know, a lot's changed both in the scholarship um, and that in me in, in terms of interpreting it. So one step would be going back there. Um, I have another idea for a project that has more to do, you know, so I've been teaching at Nazareth College now. I just finished my 17th year. So having taught college for a little bit and thinking about, um, 
teaching and uh, generational change within teaching. Uh, I have another project that uh, that might look at that um, from um, from multiple perspectives. It wouldn't just be about Native American or even American uh, historical perspectives. <clears throat> it might be something that would be um, uh, global in scale, which, of course, by dabbling into not only Amer different areas of American history, but uh, different nations or different countries or regions' histories, uh, I'll probably open myself up to even more error. But um, I, I think I'd like to do something on um, uh, teaching from a historical perspective um, in the future as well. Well, that's wonderful. And it sounds like we have multiple projects to look forward to in the uh, in the years to come. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, thank you very much. Thomas Lapas is a professor of history and political science at Nazareth College. Uh, his new book, In League Against King Alcohol, Native American Women and the Women's Christian Temperance Union, 1874 to 1933, is available from the University of Oklahoma Press. <laughs>